Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. Um, this week, our co-hosts, Claire O'Connor, uh, wasn't able to join us, but uh, luckily you still have me, Dave Gibney. Uh, but I'm joined by three guests. Firstly, we have Julian Merciel, who's an academic uh, from UCD and a member of the ISAG uh, movement, which is the Independent Scientific Advisory Group. Um, but we also have two regular participants and activists, Glenn Fitzpatrick and Michelle Byrne. Now, normally we review what's on the front of the papers uh, at the very start, but bear with me for a couple of minutes because last week, I think some of you might have noticed that we didn't have a show. And that was because we lost a dear friend and a comrade a a couple of days beforehand, Mel Curry. Many of you were probably familiar with Mel, who had been on the show twice, but he was also a co-host of our sister podcast, Trademark Belfast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Mel contracted COVID-19 over the Christmas period, and despite a brave battle, he succumbed to the virus at just 56 years of age. Look, there's a fantastic, I'm not going to get into too much detail about Mel, but there's a fantastic tribute to him in the Morning Star, which we'll share on our Facebook and Twitter accounts later on. Um, but I just wanted to acknowledge, and having spoken to the other co-hosts, we wanted to acknowledge the work Mel had done over the years for activists and trade unionists across the island of Ireland. Um, he was one of the hidden heroes uh, and activists in Ireland that, that you don't hear about because he stood stayed in the background as much as he could. But if you're not familiar with the work that Trademark Belfast, Belfast does, they're the official anti-sectarian unit of the Irish labour movement. So when a row breaks out in a factory between loyalists and Republicans up north, it was Mel who was brought in to try and defuse the situation. Um, a very difficult and sensitive job that only a few people could could handle. And Mel did, did it with ease. Um, there's an obituary today in, um, or this weekend's Irish Times for Norman Houston, who was a diplomat in the North. And it's a lovely write-up about his contribution to the peace process. But I think it would be remiss of me not to mention that lasting peace doesn't happen without the likes of Trademark and specifically Mel Corey. And Mel also did training for trade union activists all across the country. He trained mandates shop stewards, mandate trade unions shop stewards for the last nine years. Um, he educated workers on health and safety as well as political economy. He was involved in the Right to Water campaign and the re- Repeal campaign as well. Um, I had the pleasure of speaking alongside Mel at a number of different events over the years, including most recently the Trade Union Left Forum event about how legislation is preventing workers from organising in, in workplaces. He also, we also spoke at a, an Ogre Sinn Féin and a Patter O'Donnell Forum event. All of these events that I ever always spoke with Mel at were always at weekends, Saturdays or Sundays, when he'd give up uh, his weekend for the movement. Um, without question, he, you just asked Mel to do something for you. He did it without question. Um, he was an activist. And there were two descriptions that struck me during the week about Mel. Uh, the incorruptible working class was was one of them. Uh, and uh, I think it was Naomi, uh, no, Naomi Connor uh, wrote that you made a difference, Mel. Uh, and he certainly did. So our sincere condolences go out to Mel's family, his friends uh, and his trademark uh, comrades Ali, Sean and Stevie so rest in power comrade and with that we'll move on to the papers and I'll, first of all I'll go to you Michelle to see what you've been looking at. Absolutely yeah lovely words there from El. Um, I was very honoured to have just completed a training session with him on political economy myself and Glenn um, and very honoured to have shared a pod with him here on The Week at Work um, and I suppose that moves us straight into I suppose a lot of talk about Covid on the front papers and um, and uh, I, the one I was looking at here in the Irish Times, um, government divided over quarantine for foreign travellers. So uh, very interesting here is we're seeing resistance from Fianna Gael and the Green Party on this plan. Um, and the reasons given being obviously the North and uh, to keep supply chains open. So I, I thought it was kind of uh, ironic that the Green Party are listed as one of the people who are going to be against it, seeing as you'd imagine that the Green Party would be promoting anything that might deter any sort of air travel on the basis of environmental reasons. But it doesn't seem to be that's what's uh, leading their, leading them on that. Um, and then I, I was drawn to a quote as well from Michal Martin when, he, you know, he said... Um, that uh, forget travel, you shouldn't be going to your property abroad if you have one. So Michal Martin says, if rich people could stop being rich for a moment, that would be great. Um, I, I don't know who that resonates with, that quote, but apparently it's a lot of people who are going over to their properties abroad. Um, so that was a very interesting um, breakdown of why people are, uh, I, that conversation around that, and I'm sure there's other common pieces and other papers about that particular one. Um, another story that was drawn to as well on the front page of the Sunday Times was uh, George Nikenko, the story about George Nikenko, uh, Nikenko shot in the back by Gerdy. So obviously that this had a huge amount of um, conversations online, but the family um, essentially they have hired hired an independent uh, um, doctor anyway to 
um, reviewed the cause of death and it was he was shot twice twice in the back by the arm guardian that was what ultimately caused his death um, overall he was shot six times so um, there was a couple of corrections there obviously on the initial reports that were flying around social media and what actually occurred there but I suppose um, the Garda Commission has um, raised the, the status of the investigation into how it was handled up to criminal um, and that there, there's all, it also states as well that there's been no statements taken from witnesses who are the family so I suppose yeah there's there's been a lot of disinformation around this so we're starting to see some of the facts coming out now um, and I, I, I know there was a lot of like disinformation and that was you know linked to a lot of like a constructed far campaign by the far right um, I suppose a lot of people were very very quick to believe a lot of these lies um, and I don't know whether that was just true you know they weren't media literate to understand where, what was fake news and what wasn't or checking their sources or spotting disinformation or if people found it easier to believe the lies and perhaps motivated by their own uh, racism. So I think there was a lot of self-reflection there from a lot of people who um, maybe fell for some of the, the messages that were being shared around on social media, and particularly, um, particularly like many comments around how people support the guards when they even didn't know the full story and the guard or what the guard procedure was there before the investigation report. Um, basically, guards are just presumed innocent, apparently, uh, in approach of killing this young man before any of the facts really came out. So that was... And um, disappointing to say the least, because you can't, no one is above, you can't uphold everyone above the law. There's always, you know, room for mistakes. And obviously there's still more to come out there. But um, I suppose it really, this story has really hit me um, in a way where George was almost the same age as me. And it kind of, it shook me to the core that someone my age could have their life ended like that um, on the basis of obviously a, a very um, traumatic mental health event. But I suppose um, there was a great piece by uh, Shamin uh, Malcoming uh, from Hot Press who published a really humanising article actually about George and his life before up to this point. Talks about his friends and football and mentions the struggles that he had at racism growing up um, and ultimately how that might have led to his difficulties with mental health and how he, he um, existed in the world. Um, and it did, it did come out since actually that he was waiting on mental health care and that the guards are aware of this and you know it does just seem like a complete failure of the system and an unnecessary life lost um, unfortunately. Um, another story uh, well actually it's a picture and the story that is on the front but another story is um, a woman arrested by police officers at protests in Moscow yesterday so there's been huge protests after breaking out in um, Russia so 50,000 people have braved almost minus 50 degrees Celsius um, to go out and protest um, the opposition leader has been um, jailed having returned from hospital in Germany after he had been um, poisoned essentially uh, with some, um, they reckon it's an old Soviet style poisoning um, by Putin. So that, that was interesting with a very, very handed, a very heavy handed response to the police uh, to the policing of that protest those protests that were all over the country and um, about 2,000 arrested a lot of beatings and some of the pictures from inside actually show quite graphic beatings and a lot of batons being swung and um, so it's just an interesting story but yeah that's kind of my roundup at the front some of the stories in the front there the Irish Times um which have uh, lots of interesting readings yeah I'll get into a couple of them in a few minutes Glenn have you got anything there what, what have you been looking at um I had a look across the board, Dave, um, and obviously the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic is, is the only show in town about what's going on in the front line. And I suppose the um, the public debate now on, on what to do with quarantine. So I, I assume we're going to take up a good uh, bulk of the episode chatting about that. So I might just park that to one side and maybe give Julian first digs at some of that. Um, yeah, so I suppose there's another interesting story uh, on the front of the business post there, which is just in relation to um, Veracker pledges to help firms locked out of COVID-19 supports, um, which obviously sounds like the Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment is coming to save all these businesses who are floundering because of the pandemic. Uh, but when you actually read into the piece, I mean, it's actually about how the schemes that they set up have been pretty, you know, ineffective. And there's been so many businesses that haven't been actually able to access these things. Um, and it's, I mean, it's kind of strange territory, I think, for sometimes for left-leaning podcasts to want to talk about things that the business community needs. But I suppose it's always the paradox of the left in terms of how do we, I suppose, reach out to small businesses, to farmers and that. Uh, because time and time again, it just seems like this government and, and, and whatever government they're in anyway, certainly, you know, seems, seems to leave small and medium enterprises uh, basically to the, to the worst vestiges of this crisis and to, you know, what, what may be a vulture's playground when the thing starts to recede. Um, you know, so ultimately, uh, there's predictions that there's going to be all sorts of insolvencies this year. Uh, and there's sort of a quote towards the end there from Pierre Starty Sinn Féin saying that less than 15 million have been claimed by businesses 
under the, the CRSS uh, since October compared to an anticipated uh, cost of 80 million per week. So, um, and I mean, you kind of see these um, these stories throughout the Sundays today. Uh, there's another interview in the Sindo with uh, the Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnellog, where, you know, he's basically trying to shore up the farmer vote in terms of saying that, you know, uh, he's not going to, you know, gonna go, not, not going to go mad for veganism and how he, his favourite meat uh, is, a, is a ribeye steak. Um, and I think it's just kind of, um, you know, there's a, there's a couple of signs there. That I mean, like, well, we can build an alternative and we can get people on side for various bits and pieces. Uh, if, the, if we can somehow get the, the small and medium business community to stop voting against their interests and stop looking to, I suppose, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil for political solutions. Uh, so just a really interesting, um, I suppose, trends there in, in, in the business community, which are, I think are all starting to realise that the writing's on the wall and that maybe they, 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 that they need to push the government into, into changing tack. Um, I've loads to say on COVID, but I just, I just think that it's, it's interesting uh, to see some of the things that are coming out about um, a government which claims to be all about business and all about jobs has not been doing nearly enough um, and is now saying that they're going to do more. But I mean, we'll, I think the proof of the pudding will be in the eating there. Um, and I, I, I think that they're certainly out for, for big commercial interests and, and small and medium enterprises and, and their representative organisations should start listening to what the left has to say. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting that even when you don't talk about that element of it, what you've just mentioned there, but that, that it is Varadkar's fault in particular that these businesses are struggling right now because he was the one that went against Neffet and tried to ridicule them and all the rest of it. You think small businesses would now be going, well, well wait a second, why am I in this 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 state why why are we having these problems and the, this escalation in numbers i think it's probably an appropriate time to ring in julian julian you've been um advocating for a zero covid policy for a while now <laughs> and it seems that some people are catching up with you <laughs> do you want to tell us a little bit about that and have a look um if, if there's anything in the papers there that you want to reflect on first yeah, well, on the front pages, it's full of COVID stuff. Um, in the Sindo, uh, there's a big uh, report uh, with pictures uh, inside hospitals, which I think is kind of unusual. So the, um, I mean, it describes, it puts images on what a lot of us know already that's happening. Um, and um, yeah, the, the thing I find interesting with all that, Glenn, you were talking about the businesses and everything. A lot of the problems we have now, are due to the fact that we have COVID. It's not because, you know, like we don't, um, that some people think, oh, it's because there's a lockdown or it's because there's no test and trace. Yeah, but fundamentally it's because there's a virus. So you really have to think about how to eliminate the virus completely. Otherwise you're not going to, you know, you're just gonna be focusing on minor details in a way. Um, so for the businesses you were talking about then like, that's a very good example because the only way you can have a normal economy is no virus. Otherwise, you're always going to be arguing about things that could be better. And I think the businesses, because at ASAG, we talk a lot to businesses and groups, right, just to, to see what they're thinking. And a lot of them actually understand very well that it's better without a virus. It's just because we have the impression in the media that they always invite this restaurant people or pub owners complaining about, you know, we need to reopen everything. The businesses understand very well that eliminating the virus is the key for growth and uh, normal operations. The thing is, we always see on the media pub owners who complain about any restrictions and they want to open, but that's a bit what they, the thing to understand is that they do that because they don't have confidence in the government to carry out a real plan. So they think, oh, we're just going to be asked to close and then nothing is going to happen. Which, And they're right about that because the government doesn't have a plan um, so far. So the trick is to give them a real plan with a reward at the end and say, you will have sacrifices to make now, you know, one month or two months lockdown. And then we can convince you that this is what we're going to do after we're going to resource our public health teams, we're going to control our borders, whatever. And then they'll say, okay, now I can see why my sacrifices are important. And then they'll go along with that. And that was, it's not my interpretation. They say that to us in private, right? They're not, uh, they, they're very clear-minded about what's going on, most of them anyway. Um, so the key is really the government to have a master plan and tell people, look, it's bad to, to, to do a lockdown, but that'll lead to many rewards. And if you do that, then you have a whole different ballgame. It's not the same kind of uh, 
reactive nonsense that we've had for a year now. See, the frustrating thing is that we have all these examples of what's worked and what hasn't worked around the world. And, you know, we're a year into this and still people were only getting to this, really getting into the, 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 the meat of this debate right now. Um, a full year later, when the left has been arguing, I was saying this to Glenn earlier on, the left has been arguing for a, a zero COVID um, Melbourne, like Victoria, Australian, New Zealand style uh, blocking of new cases being brought in, as well as experts like Gabriel Scali. Um, and they've been calling for this for six, seven months now. And what we do know now is that had we done that, a lot of people would still be alive. Um, and had we done that, businesses would be open. And there's this stuff where we're hearing that the Taoiseach down here is saying we can't do that because of the North and the open border. And Arlene Foster up North is saying we can't do that because of what's down South and people coming up North. And it's like the two of them don't know what their phone numbers are, that they can't pick up the phone and say, hey, do you know what we should do? <laughs> I know you're uncomfortable with the Irish Sea being the border, but let's do it to save lives. It's it's that simple, you know. Um, I'll just quickly go through a couple of stories that are on the front pages of the papers that I was looking at. Um, I'm going to come back to a quirky one in a second one, and we will continue on the COVID debate. But um, one that really struck me and really upset me, actually, was uh, front page of the Irish Times weekend. One was the four Irish jailed for people smuggling. Uh, and it's 39 Vietnamese people who suffocated in a truck container. Um, and people will probably remember this. Uh, but Hollier Ronan Hughes, who's 41, uh, from County Monaghan, who organized it, uh, got 20 years for, for 39 counts of manslaughter. Um, so 39 people died on his watch and he only gets 20 years. And um, the other guys got less of a sentence. The, the driver um, got, I think it is 18 years. We have uh, another person from County Armagh, Christopher Kennedy. Uh, he got seven years. Morris Robinson, uh, who collected the container when it arrived, he got 13 years. I mean, 39 deaths. Um, and when you read into the article on the inside of the Irish Times, it tells you how had they, they been successful to get these migrants in, the they would have probably, oh, it's actually on the front page as well, it says they would have made approximately 1 million euros from this people trafficking uh, scam. Um, but it's it's a fairly upsetting story. Uh, you know, we don't want to get into great detail about it, but how people who were dying on the inside of that truck were texting their loved ones back in Vietnam saying goodbye because they knew the writing was on the wall. So a little bit of an upsetting story if people want, wanted to have a, a look at that. Um, there's obviously the tighter restrictions on travel and quarantine expected next week. Um, that article on the front page talks about these new new um, variants of uh, of COVID, the B117 variant detected in Kent, which now accounts for 60% of new cases in the Republic. Now, if it's accounting for 60% of new cases and it's only been found a month ago, I think it's safe to say that having open borders didn't really help us on this one. Um, and of course, there's the, the the stuff from Boris Johnson who says that it's 30% now, now he's saying that it's 30% more fatal to th that new strain. So again, get back to the whole uh, COVID debate around the zero COVID stuff in a second. But I, I know you guys touched on the business post already, but there's one article up in the top right-hand corner, which absolutely completely surprised me. The state may reclaim Rosslare Port from Britain. I had no idea that Britain was still a, an owner of Rosslare Port in Wexford. They, when they handed back Cove and some of the other ports, um, they held on to uh, Rosslare. So uh, now with Brexit and with all of the stuff that's going on, the Irish state, Eamon Ryan is flexing his muscles and saying, we want it back. We want Rosslare Port back. So it's just a, a very strange one that I had no no idea about. Michelle, have you got any reflections there on the COVID stuff or is there anything else you want to bring in? Yeah, well, I suppose it is linked to the COVID stuff, but if I was having a look as well um, on page two of the Sunday Times where it's talking about workers entitled to statutory sick pay within a year. So obviously this conversation um, came out of the back of the meat plants all, um, you know, having the like clusters in the meat plants, but it says, and it does actually refer to it in the, in the article that 
Um, it's coming from the industry after a lot. It was a factor in low paid factory workers being reluctant to declare themselves ill. So obviously it's a workers uh, rights piece, but it, it's it's been a catalyst. The COVID has been the catalyst for this to come to light and for people to actually um, start listening to this. So it's looking like um, there will be some sort of statutory sick pay scheme um, within the year. So there's a bill supposed to be coming in in March. Um, but I suppose the details of that um, are being teased out. There was a public consultation um, that some people might have engaged with over the last, um, just last, this month, um, last month actually. Um, and I suppose it does say that Ireland is one of the only three EU member states without a statutory sick pay scheme, um, but rates of sick pay scheme would vary. And it does go on to talk about like how this will affect small businesses and that there will be, and it would be eased into, into that kind of sector more, but it, and they talk about maybe basing it on a percentage of earnings and then supported by state funded uh, illness benefits. So it, it, it's interesting to see. But there was there was one piece on it here um, that the, the government, uh, Vadker says, the government will be mindful of the cost implications for particular companies, especially in the hard hit hospitality, tourism, leisure and entertainment sectors. Now, I really hope that 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 isn't going to be impacted on the workers and that is going to be supportive of the industries there, because we already know that people in those sectors are precarious workers, gig economies, um, and obviously very hard, hard hit by COVID. But I would certainly hope that um, people who are probably going to find it very difficult to figure out what their percentage of their pay is going to be when it comes to sick pay aren't in some way affected by these laws um, any, more, any worse than everybody else who would who would get uh, access to state, um, statutory sick pay schemes. So, yeah, it's just an interesting one. I suppose it's a catalyst to something maybe more positive to come out of all of this. Um, um, but yeah, it's just interesting. And there was another piece as well there on page two of the Sunday Times as well. And it was around um, the Gardaí to be more robust on uh, COVID rules. So there was kind of uh, mentions about a lot of traffic movements um, on the motorways and stuff, because clearly people are still being forced into work, whether that's because they're bored at home or they want to get out or whether their bosses are actually, um, you know, not putting in provisions for them to actually work from home or in, insisting that they they come into the offices. So, um, you know, that is going to be interesting. And it'll be interesting um, to see that if uh, workers who are being fined for traveling over 5k are going, are they going to get the fines or can they build that to their employers who are making them go into the office? It'll be interesting to see that conversation play out anyway, for sure. Um, but obviously then it goes on to mention um, the anti-vax groups as well, who've been protesting. It seems they've been targeting um, where vaccines are being distributed. So I, that wasn't, that was not news to me. Um, but that's interesting that they, that, you know, they said they're going to crack down a bit more on the anti-vax protests. Um, doesn't mention about any other um, protests and you know we do have a right to protest and all of that but it is interesting to see anti-vax groups mentioned there um, and how they're targeting the the vaccine deliveries which is um, not great obviously um, but there, there, there are two things I suppose on the COVID piece there as well to add to that. Right and um, just on the coercive control of employers over workers and and, and just for our listeners because some people don't work in these industries and obviously with my day job, working with mandate trade union, um, retail workers and bar workers, and bar workers are out of a job at the moment, but retail workers, what tends to happen is um, if you go sick or you do something that your employer doesn't like, they can slash your hours um, to whatever they want, uh, really. So, you know, while we technically have a, a no um, zero-hour contracts in Ireland, there's still facilities there for the employer to control your hours, drop them to whatever is the minimum in your contract. And, and look, I know of companies that have four-hour minimum contracts, um, and that's technically not a zero-hour contract. But th this is the level of control. So if you're feeling a few symptoms and you're worried um, that, that, that you might have COVID, you have to make the choice about do I piss off my employer because they're already stuck for staff because other people have gone sick or, or, or and then risk not getting any hours next week or the week after um, or do I you know, go to work? And um, that's the difficult choices. And that's why we lobbied on the banded hours legislation, the Employment Miscellaneous Provisions Act successfully last year. And many of our listeners probably aren't aware if you have worked for your employer for a, for a year now, you have a legal entitlement a legal entitlement now to seek a review of your contracted hours and get them regularized so that the hours that you have been working over the previous 12 months are guaranteed in legislation so that they can't cut them. So avail of that legislation if possible, join your union and get them to put in your application for you uh, and get everybody in your workplace to do it as well, particularly at this difficult time. 
Um, I'm going to go to you, Glenn, next, uh, just again about the zero COVID stuff, because you've been you've been talking to me about this stuff within the trade union movement, as has Julian. So we'll come back to Julian, who might explain to us exactly what zero COVID looks like. But Glenn, what, tell us some of your actions and some of your thoughts around the zero COVID sure movement. Thing, yeah, um, well, look at it, I suppose it's just realising that the thing is in movement all the time. Um, and sort of sitting idly by wondering what could I do, I emailed my Sinn Féin TD, who I suppose, all due respect to him, gave me a very thorough reply about why things couldn't happen because of the partition, because the DUP wouldn't like it. Which, to which I said, you know, the famous Sinn Féin retort, the DUP won't go for it, therefore we mustn't ask for it. Um, and ultimately, you know, the, the largest vehicle for social change on this island, the, the, the trade union movement. So I was trying to figure out, like, how can we get those two entities into a space where they're on side with it because um i mean if, even over the last 48 hours uh, some of the most ardent centrists have become big zero covid advocates um david mac williams being one uh comrade colin mccarthy this morning and lucindo being another um and even uh, colin mccarthy basically saying listen the construction industry federation are already ready to start asking for things to be loosened up here uh, you know, so he's basically honestly telling us what, what the capitalists are going to be doing. And um, I mean, it seems to me like the, certainly the smart capitalist ideologues have, have figured out it's the only game in town as well. So um, I suppose using the uh, the left block network that you set up, Dave, just to ask people, like, are, am I mad here or is everybody else pretty much you on the left think this is the only game in town? Um, you know, that was quite warmly received by people from all across the political spectrum. Um, including some shinners. And I suppose, you know, we're looking at maybe getting a petition going between that group that would just be sort of trade unionists for an all-island zero-COVID strategy with a view to, well, what can we do as trade unionists? We can put motions into our branches and we can put pressure on our executives to use their pressure uh, points to get the government to move to that space. So if we can get the trade union movement singing off that hymn sheet, then we'd have done our part and maybe other sections of society will follow suit. So that's kind of the lay of the land, really. Right, uh, I'm going to go to you next, Julian, just around this, but look, I'm going to be completely honest and it's, it's reflecting on something Michelle said about the whole Garda crackdown and there's an article there on page five of the Irish Times, nearly 800 people have been fined over the travel rule. And two days ago, I think it was, maybe three days ago, the Garda Twitter account tweeted a, a picture of them stopping cars there at Dublin Airport. And I think this is a, sort of a symbol of how Ireland's government are, are, are approaching this um, COVID stuff is that the guards are stopping people on the way to the airport, people who are at no risk to, to, the, to the Irish population because they're leaving the country. And they're not on the other side of the road stopping people who have arrived to ask them, had, are they going to quarantine? Have they had a test? Where are they coming from? So, you know, it's all about optics. It's, it's, it's a show that, look, we're taking this seriously, but we're in reality what they're doing is, is of no help to the public. Um, Julian, tell us a little bit about the zero COVID stuff because you've been on to me for a while about this stuff and I've, I have forwarded uh, some of your emails to um, colleagues. So I think it is important that if we can get the trade union movement behind us because in reality, it's workers whose lives are on the line here. That's what's spreading it. You know, it's it's our members on the front line in retail outlets. And mm-hmm. we had this debate two weeks ago on, on this show where I was talking about how, you know, the rollout of the vaccination program, we don't know where retail workers are on it, right? There's 15 categories of workers on it. We think they're 13, which is uh, essential workers who can avoid contracting COVID. But in reality, retail workers can't keep two metres distance while they're stacking a shelf and a customer comes over to them and says to them, excuse me, do you have this in a different colour? They can't avoid that sort of stuff. You guess you can put up uh, a screen around a till or something, but they're really on the front line. And when a retail worker contracts COVID, they deal with hundreds of people a week. And it's a source of spreading the virus. So this, again, coming back to it about a workplace issue, this is about saving people's lives um, and really, I believe trade unions of all sorts need to get behind the zero COVID strategy. So tell us what zero COVID is, Julian, and, and your your position on this. Yeah, uh, zero COVID, um, the slightly weak point about zero COVID is the name is slightly misleading, right? Uh, it's not that we want, you know, zero virus everywhere because that's not possible. What it means technically is that you don't have um, cases in the community for a few days or 14 days. And the community cases means, in Ireland, it means the cases we don't know where they're from, right? So it means that every case you have that pops up, you actually know, okay, this is this traveler in that hotel, 
now we can contact trace the person that they've seen, right? So, uh, for example, zero COVID would be describing New Zealand and Australia, but they still have cases all the time, but they, they, they know where they're from and they know where they've been. So that's what it is. So it's more a target than an absolute uh, state of perfection, which is not possible. Uh, and in pandemics and outbreak managements, the one key concept is that you don't want to shoot for perfection. Maybe you want to shoot for perfection, but it'll be good if it's not perfect. So that's all it is. And there's, it's very easy to understand what it is. There's only two types of countries in the world right now. The ones that have beaten COVID and the ones that are still struggling with it. That's it. The good thing is that the countries that have beaten COVID did all the same thing. All of them. There's no exception. So it's really easy to know what to do if you want to beat COVID. You just have to do it well. So it's three things mostly. It's one is that lockdowns to reduce number of cases to a manageable level. Then control your borders, because why would you reduce cases if you allow the country to be reinfected? Doesn't make any sense. And three, have a good contact tracing infrastructure so that cases that pop up once in a while, you can actually trace them and nip them in the bud. That's all it is. There's no other, I mean, there's details. There's the vaccines, of course, that are very important, but that's at the level of science and distribution of the vaccine. It's not like, um, you know, uh, managing the, the cases, let's say. So that's it. Um, in some countries, it's harder to do than others. Like if you're an island, of course, you have a natural advantage. It's easier. Um, so Ireland has the border. Yeah, it's an obstacle, but, uh, you know, you deal with it. Germany has nine borders, I think, and they've announced that they're going to go more uh, towards uh, managing borders. Borders have been managed at the beginning of the pandemic by European countries. So it's really a matter of political will and um, having a collective project. Really, That's really what it is. You can't solve that just by having a good idea. You need to say all the guards in your, in your country Put your head towards a plan for this and that, all the HSC, all the emergency management people, and then you have a shot at it. If you don't do that, you know, nothing is going to happen. So for the trade union, um, my view is that, see, at ISAG, we speak to everybody, the interest groups and the vintners, the <laughs> nurses or whatever. My view is that the only way you can solve this is by having a, some kind of a whole of society approach. You, you can't just rely on one thing. You need to have... Uh, the unions, the business groups to be at least not blocking anything or making some effort in the direction of the, you have to have the HSE, the government, the opposition parties, the government. So if you don't have that, it'll be a bit hard. The unions, I think, and you guys can probably tell me a bit better. Um, I think they're key because that's, you know, they're important, popular kind of um, collective institutions. The catch-22 is that um, if you are arguing for a lockdown, which is necessary at the, the case, at the level we are uh, in cases, and you don't compensate workers properly financially, it becomes a bit of a catch-22 because the worker will say, okay, I'd like to have a lockdown. I'm not stupid. You know, I want to eliminate COVID. But if that means I'm taking a pay cut of that many percent, what do I do? You know, I might take a risk and... Um, still go for uh, for to work and uh, be oppo opposing a zero uh, covid strategy that requires a, a long lockdown uh, because otherwise i can't pay my bills or whatever so that's the, why you cannot have a zero covid strategy without good economic supports for people who are you, know, you can't let people you know die like that of, of covid or, or of not being able to afford the food or whatever so that's the, um, the trick. And there's a lot of power relationships, like you guys said. Uh, if you have uh, employers which are left alone to do whatever they like in terms of sick pay or whatever, you know, you're not going to solve it. So to solve COVID, you have to address the power structures in society, at least to some extent, um, that it becomes um, manageable to, and to protect workers, for example. Hey, Glenn, I know you want in on this next, so fire ahead. <laughs> Just a small, uh, I suppose, tangent off of that is uh, some of those power structure structures are are laid bare before us, even in the, in the Sundays today. Um, although I suppose the the papers tend not to join the dots, it's like almost like they're so so close, you know. So the editorial of the Business Post is basically asking about mandatory quarantine and say, you know, there's no reason why this couldn't happen, and you know, well, what's the logic behind this, that, and the other. 
And then in the same paper, uh, Peter O'Dwyer reports how Aer Lingus lobbied the government against the mandatory quarantine measures. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> case in point there, you know. Um, so I, I just thought that was an interesting thing to see. You know, it's it's, it's a real head scratcher. Uh, but I suppose that that, that that sector has, has you know, the short termism of that sector, we all have to pay the consequences for that, you know. Um, just, just wanted to point that out. Yeah, and the, the, I mean, I read that article as well. And what struck me about it is um, th- this part of it, I'll read out a little part of it so people, the listeners can get an understanding of what Aer Lingus were looking for. So Niall Timlin, who's the head of corporate engagement at Aer Lingus, said that the airline was very concerned about the proposed deletion of a sentence from the EU's draft travel, travel recommendations. And the relevant sentence read, wherever possible, the possibility to undergo tests for COVID-19 infection instead of quarantine should be the preferred option. So that sentence was removed so that governments would have an excuse not to actually bring in a mandatory quarantine uh, period. But I I just wanted to, before we go back to Michelle, uh, I don't know whether Michelle wants to talk about COVID or move on to another story, but there's also a story, and you've just reminded me of it, Julian, there, which you're talking about Germany and how that applies about borders. But there's an article on page nine of the Irish Times, Belgium bans all non-essential travel. So I, I looked it up. Uh, Belgium has four borders. They don't have to worry about one country. They have to worry about four, but it's the Netherlands, Germany, France, and Luxembourg. Um, and they've just banned all airline travel in. So if it doesn't matter. And it's on mainland Europe. So there's plenty of ways to cross the border and get into Belgium, but they're trying. And that's the thing. They're giving it a go. And we're not. And we're using an excuse. And, and that's what it is. It's an excuse. It's saying we can't do it because of Arlene Foster. We can't do it because of the DUP. And they're up there saying we can't do it because of Fianna Fáil. We can't do it because of Fine Gael. It, it's, it's bollocks, to be honest. And it needs to. we need to get rid of that shite and start fucking taking this seriously. So, Michelle, have you got anything to add to that? Yeah, well, it's just um, on the vaccine side of things then in the in the Sunday Times as well, it talks about like this gold rush then for COVID vaccine. So obviously uh, we're seeing here now TDs, the HSE, the government, everyone is being um, lobbied for who is more deserving of the vaccine than others. And um, like, obviously we have to, it's, it's just some of the illustrations here. You know, it says I'm more essential than you. Um, I think you'll find I'm more essential than you. So there is this kind of like battle here now of like, um, and it mentions it like the Hunger Games to be to kill or to be killed uh, over these vaccines now, which is very interesting. And we have some parish pump politics going on as well, where, you know, certain TDs believe that their constituency is more uh, deserving of a vaccine than other constituencies. So that's very interesting because obviously that's based in science. Um, and then we see here as well, um, the government said, how can we ensure that we're all that all in this together spirit um, does not fracture? Now, I don't know if the government have been paying attention, but I don't think we've had that spirit for quite a while when, you know, they're setting uh, divisions out in the media between unions and the government uh, regularly. So, um, you know, when we see people people going bashing teachers um, for protect, trying to protect their own health, when we see people flying in and out of the country, um, you know, on holidays and when we're seeing... Um, yeah, bosses forcing their employees to go to work. I think the idea of us all being in together has been thrown out the window a long time ago. Um, but it is just interesting. And then we have um, a senior lecturer here, Patrick McGarthy, um, commented. He said, we, we must be seen careful not to, to placate special interest groups that shout the loudest. Um, the challenge for the government is to ensure a clear, consist- consistent message is conveyed to the Irish people in order to reignite social solidarity. And that we saw in the early stages of the pandemic, and I think that's important. And I think the government have a lot to do, a lot that they can do in regards to this. In in how obviously the vaccine, is, like that the the distribution is transparent, that there's you know that there's accountability there, um, and to um to like kind of placate a lot of those concerns, but also you know the social solidarity. We need to get that back rather than everyone bashing everyone in the media every weekend and online and on social media. Um, but there's a lot of work there to be done. Um, to to quite kind of crush this gold rush for COVID vaccines, as it's been called. Right, I'm, I'm going to throw a, a story to you, and it's it's not specifically COVID-related, actually, uh, but it, it, I just want to see if anyone has any opinion opinions about this one, because I do think it's an interesting one. We've just been talking about the DUP, but um, page three of the Irish Times, and it's uh, headline, Unionists Rattled by Osborne Warning on United Ireland. Um, and I'm sure some of you have read some stuff on, on Twitter and stuff, but just going to read out some of his quotes from his speech about Northern Ireland. <clears throat> By unleashing English nationalism, Brexit has made the future of the UK the central political issue of the coming decade. 
Northern Ireland is already heading for the exit door. Uh, the article says Osborne then twisted the blade. Northern Irish unionists always feared the mainland was not sufficiently committed to their cause. Now their short-sighted support for Brexit, an unbelievably stupid torpedo decision to torpedo Theresa May's deal that avoided separate Irish arrangements, has made those fears a reality. What really, I think, has bugged a lot of uh, unionists up north is this following sentence. Scotland is an altogether different matter. Its history is our history. Um, so he's really having a pop at the unionists up north, which, you know, it tended to be in the past the Tories um, and Osborne's party who would defend the, the unionists up north. Here they're really, really... Uh, putting in some strong words. It says here, it was strong stuff with the implication that the North is, a, is an artistic and scientific backwater and not really part of the Union. So there's a there's a few articles about that in the Business Post as well uh, and in other papers. But has anyone else got any other stories if they don't want to comment on that one? I have a story from the Sunday Times. Uh, and it's not that I, I think that's really interesting from George Hunt's perspective. I just, uh, it's, it's not something I have a form of view on and let people of the North decide for themselves. But, uh, and this is just a total change away from COVID now, which may be uh, welcome. And it's just in relation to Mark Teague uh, or Teague, I'm sorry, I never know whether, which which one it is. And it's clubs still waiting for FAI grants pledged by Delaney. Um, so it's just a story about how clubs, look, amateur football clubs and, and, and mostly volunteer run football clubs across the country were like orally made promises by John Delaney about grants and funding that would make it, um, I suppose, into their coffers. And a lot of them went and spent the money on that basis and the money never uh, appeared. But it's, I mean, I would say it's it's fodder head stuff, but I mean, truth is stranger than fiction. And I mean, the, I suppose the stuff that comes out about Delaney's tenure there just keeps getting worse and worse. So it, apparently he's made over 2,000 trips to like local clubs, to like, you know, dinner events, to AGMs, to award ceremonies and that, uh, just to essentially keep his leadership intact. Um, I haven't quite read uh, Mark Teague's book yet, which I suppose is next to my reading list. But um, I mean, it's just, just to sort of lay some stuff bare, um, because there's a lot of this sort of, you know, it keeps coming up that Delaney do materially good things for Irish uh, football. Um, but when he took over, uh, we were, uh, in terms of the coefficients, the League of Ireland was the 38th ranked league in Europe out of about 51 or 52. And when he left, it was 42nd. Uh, and the national team was ranked 14th in the world when he took over. And when he left, um, we were 36th. So um, just a couple of stats, I suppose, show uh, some of the damage that has been done there. But now, in fairness, the Sunday Times has been good in relation to, which is probably low-hanging fruit in relation to some of the issues they should go after. But uh, just, just uh, it would make your, your blood boil as... So it would anybody who's given up any time to, to amateur football in this country and it wouldn't be tolerated in GAA or rugby, uh, which I think is worth saying as well. Yeah, I mean, I as as someone who was a, a chairperson of a local football club and involved in, in, in football and watched John Delaney over the years since actually Saipan uh, 2002, where he was the treasurer and how he manipulated himself into the position of being chief executive not so long afterwards. I think and having read a good bit about the Delaney debacle, it's a good micro, microcosm of how Ireland works, actually, about how clientelism works. Uh, you know, we see it in the political world, but his attendance at local events all across the country, local events of fo- for football clubs, and, and licking up to the people in control of those, those football clubs in order to persuade them to support him and his candidacy for chief executive and for pay increases and all the rest of it. You know, the guy was on 400 grand a year. was getting, you know, his apartments paid for by the FAI at a time when, you know, the, the, the actual national football team, the players couldn't even fly first class. They had to fly in the back uh, while he was up for in first class. Uh, and they didn't, I was listening to Jason McIntyre talking about Saipan yesterday, actually, about how, the in order to save costs for the Saipan trip. Now, this is a time when John Delaney was treasurer. They decided to send the football kit and the balls and all of the equipment on a Thursday because it was cheaper than sending it on the Saturday with the, the team. So when the lads all arrived at their pre-World Cup training camp, <laughs> they have no balls, no football jerseys, no kit, 
and they're training on a car park. And I think that is Ireland. <laughs> That's just. I saw that in Mike Bassett, England manager, and thought that was like based on some kind of a joke when the assistant manager leaves all the balls in the boot of the car and goes into town to do the shopping. And they're, they're there pretend, like, training with an imaginary football, doing bicycle kicks and everything. But there you go. Uh, Realistic. Maybe I was right not to reopen that all women, but yeah. sometimes I think Father Ted wasn't actually a comedy. Um, it was just an actual real reflection of how Ireland operates. Michelle, you wanted in on um, some other stories. I know we probably couldn't go the week without saying goodbye to Trump as well, but maybe you want to say one or two things about Trump. Or- yeah, well, there's definitely a, there's a couple of images that caught my eye in the in the Sunday Times as well. Of uh, Some people might remember the giant Trump blimp that we brought over to Ireland to uh, uplift fundraise to get it over. And there's a repeated image of it here on an article. So it caught my eye. And the, the title of it being, For the Media Outrage Machine, Trump Will Be a Hard Habit to Kick. So this is a piece by uh, Josh Clancy, who talks about essentially how, you know, Trump was bringing in the numbers for the media and the money on the back of it and how much money and uh, interest that the, he, he generated. And to be honest, uh, the, <laughs> it's just reading this article is just, uh, you know, it's where we were talking about a reality show or entertainment. Oh, I'm so sad that that season is over now. How will we bring in the, how will we bring in the money now? Like, what will we report on? Um, it's just absolutely like, Trump may be bad news for America, the former BBC chief told the table, but he's good news for business. And that's always been the line, hasn't it? But it's just really interesting to see um, the media, how they, they describe it as um, he fested on the car- carnival of outrage and culture war and people were addicted to Trump. Um, and, you know, he's just such a caricature. And um, it also comments on how Trump has shaped a hole in their schedules now. Like, God forbid, God forbid that we remember that another president has just been put in place and that they might actually have something to say about policies and everything that, yes, he might not say it in the same way that would generate the, the clickbait articles. But it's just like I'm just astounded reading this uh, article. It's really interesting. It kind of um, kind of ties me back to something that's happening locally here in Waterford, where uh, recently we have now got access to online uh, council meetings uh, so the public can view it. And one of the arguments that was being bandied around for why that we, we shouldn't have these uh, open uh, council meetings for the public, which is in law that we would have that, uh, was because the media, would, the local media would have nothing else to report on if everyone had access to the meetings, which obviously... <laughs> is a bizarre statement to make um but they're saying that you know if, if the media are the ones in the inside they can you know they can fill the papers with what's happened but if, if god forbid people actually had access to it themselves uh you know they mightn't be able to have any analysis on it or anything and um, so this is a very interesting uh, discussion but yeah obviously trump is a big one on that and uh, something else that i was reading about as well and it kind of links to what Glenn was saying there at the start about the minister for agriculture charlie mcconnell and um, mcconnell and um, there was a, a piece here, officials grab bull by the horns on herd size. Now, the minute you talk, start talking about herd size, you immediately annoy people. But it's just interesting because um, there was a briefing document prepared by some of the officials in the Department of Agriculture. And this report says, um, it mentions how we still have an increasing herd size. So I was shocked to read that in the discussion of all of this around herd size, we have an extra 105,000 cattle in w- last year from the year before so we're looking at now over seven million ca- uh, cattle on this island um and still going up even in all of the discussions of all of this so yeah so and you know it does the report says as well that you know the even like there's an increasing um of the national herd but it's not going to be reduced um with just changing the, whatever you're feeding them or whatever so you know it's, it's very interesting then that it goes on to say that this report was prepared by the climate change and bioenergy policy uh, policy division of the department but it runs counter to some of the reports from other branches inside the department of agriculture and chagas who says that uh basically methane from cattle is not as harmful as they say but then I, uh, the article goes on then to say a, re- a researcher says claims that methane from agriculture is less harmful is disingenuous and obviously it is um, but I just, it, it's quite a small, a small piece, but a very important one. And I don't know why this wasn't given more uh, page space, to be honest, um, because, you know, as, as much as we're having a health crisis at the moment, we're also in a climate crisis. Um, and that to me seems like a bit, a very big deal, but it didn't get too much, um, it didn't get too much space on the page, but maybe that was to save the trees. Who knows? Well, this, I mean, that, that was one of the issues that came up in the programme for government about the, the, the methane and how it was being measured uh, and how they convinced the Green Party to go for the deal was that they discounted methane um, because that's where the targets are really being missed um, in the programme for government's figures. 
Um, but that brings me to page four of the Irish Times. And maybe one of you might want to come in on this one as well. But the Green Party seeks internal consensus on EU-Canada trade deal. This is the CETA uh, deal. So, um, and again, it's it sort of, there's there's bits as well we can come back to on Trump if people want to, but this is the debate that the Green Party had yesterday. I don't know if people have been paying attention to it. Um, you know, the Green Party has an official policy of being opposed to CETA, the party does, but the parliamentary party has decided they're going to ignore the party members' wishes and going to vote in favour of of CETA and the, the the reflections I saw on Twitter yesterday were effectively oh it's not that important we have to it's in the program for government that we're going to be supporting new uh, or, or existing and new trade agreements but you know ignoring the big one which is the ISDS or whatever it's called now the the state dispute mechanisms where they can sue uh, states for taking action so I think. Barry Finnegan was it raised the prospect around water stuff the other day that if data centers um, are being charged for their water in the future, that that, that the data centers then can sue the Irish state for you know any interference in their profits that they would make, the expectations uh, of profits that they would make. So um, it's really shown the last twelve months or so has really shown the Green Party for the lack of backbone and lack of sort of um, trustworthiness that many of us probably anticipated before because we were around 10 years ago. But for people like Saoirse McHugh, who has a, there's a really interesting article in the Sunday Business Post all about her, um, a massive article, which we'll get into in a few minutes because I think Glenn has read it as well. But I don't know, uh, Julian, um, you might have some perspectives there on either Trump or the CETA trade deal. I, I presume being Canadian, you're probably in favour of CETA, yeah? I, I've paid more attention to Trump than CETA, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so much into COVID now that I, there's a lot of topics I don't follow as much as I'd like. But um, I mean, the Trump, did you want to talk about a specific article or just... Um... Well, if you, if you have an article, fire ahead. But if you just have observations on saying goodbye to dear old Mr. Trump. Trump yeah, look, I haven't read any article, but Trump, I mean, I think the important thing to, to, to keep in mind is that Trump is a symptom of broader trends of um, people... Being disillusioned, the, 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 you know, Trump. There's a reason why when some moron like him says the media is lying to you, there's a lot of people who believe him, right? Uh, and when he says, uh, you know, your jobs are getting, you're getting shafted, that wouldn't resonate with anybody if it wasn't somewhat true. So that's it. You just have to address those uh, those causes, those root causes, and the big battle, as well, we all know, is to have a, a good alternative. Uh, Joe Biden is much better than Trump, but. <laughs> He's not the the risk for me is really that um, he's going to do something a bit cheesy and then people will say oh that's a, that's the alternative it's bullshit. A lot of people who vote for Trump know he's an asshole, right? A lot of people you ask, oh, I know he's an asshole, but at least he, he speaks directly and he might shake things up or whatever, you know, because um, he seems a bit more uh, natural or whatever or uh, personable than than someone who speaks really well and is not a bit detached from people. So um, I think that's the main. Um, the main thing with Trump, um, but I think I was in the U.S. It's so bad in one way, in one hand, but it's also very good. If you are an activist in the U.S., the movements you can join there—it's amazing. I mean, you know, like Bernie Sanders, uh, Alexandria, or whatever. Black Lives Matter. There's a lot of stuff you can join. That's really important because if you have a problem, you can act on it. It's very different than not having anything to do, which is sometimes the case in Ireland. It's a smaller country, you know, so you wonder, okay. Where is the movement for this or that? And you kind of, uh, and then you say, oh, okay, whatever, I'll just go back to my work and I won't do anything. And in the US, what I've really liked when I lived there was that there's always something going on. I was in LA, big, big Latino type of movement, which I had no you know, specific history with, but you get involved because it's really there um, and they're doing stuff. So um, that's the good thing, I think, when you have a chance to solve it, uh, at least there's hope. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons that um, we decided we were going to set up Left Block, um, which this podcast is one part of it, is that in Ireland, there's an expectation that if you want to be active politically, you need to be in a political party. And I don't want to join a political party, um, but I want to be active. Uh, and I think, you know, Right to Water and there's other movements that have happened over the last 10 years or so that, that you could get active in. But there's very little now. It's very difficult to stay active. And I'm watching very good people from... Um, different political parties but particularly the green party i suppose leaving that party and then contacting me and saying i've nothing 
nothing else to get into. Like it's very difficult to stay active outside of party political sort of stuff at the moment. But um, I was hoping, Dave, that in Ireland there was war charges and then you had abortion and same-sex marriage. And those are, everything with the church is good because you don't need to be a radical to get into it. You know, you can be liberal, you can be even somewhat moderate. I thought it would give rise to a bit more with the schools. I mean, every time you write an article, a letter in the Irish Times about the schools, there's like a million retweets about it. It's really, really an issue that people relate to. It's not my stuff, but I was hoping that building on that kind of kick the church out uh, trend would would bring people uh, together. But uh, anyway, we can work on that. It, it, it will bring <laughs> a lot of people together. There's there's other cohorts who, you know, as we've seen with the mother and baby uh, homes mm-hmm. report, that yeah. there's still a cohort there that are just um, steadfast, not going to abandon their church uh, and in denial about some of the actions that took place, mm-hmm. which, by the way, there is an article, uh, a good article about it. Um, about restrictive rules may have played a part in flawed mother and baby homes report there uh, in the Sunday Business Post, as I said. Um, but yeah, about yeah, I was going to be flawed from the start. We knew that. It's like all of the other reports that come out into anything. Um, it's either a tribunal that lasts for 30 odd years or it's a, a report that ends up coming out with, you know, just flaws all over it. Um, I don't know. Uh, Glenn, did you want to come in on something else there? Um, just a, a couple of small pieces uh, and kind of connected to what's gone on in the, in the US because I suppose a lot of the analysis this weekend is sort of pondering now what does um, Biden's presidency mean for Ireland's, I suppose, tax regime and the relationship we have with big tech and stuff like that. So um, like it seems to be accepted now, like a fake and plea that um, there will be greater regulation on a global perspective, whether it's through the process set up by the OECD or whether it's by some action taken by the, the Biden administration. Um, so I suppose just against this backdrop, you can you can sort of hear panic bells probably going off um, in the Department of Finance and in the IDA that um, you could have a couple of big casualties there, but there's kind of a general sense that oh, no Google or Facebook is going to up roots and leave on the back of this because they've got uh, roots uh, here. But I suppose, just, no, no crystal ball, but we could have an election in the next two or three years and the backdrop against that election is going to be, you know, potentially left-led, potentially Sinn Féin-led government. Uh, Sinn Féin's position on corporation taxes isn't particularly radical, um, but any kind of, uh, I suppose, shift at all in that direction is going to be read under the bed, McCarthyite stuff. Um, so I suppose just that uh, I would hope that the Sinners and the others on the left will have their arguments pretty much all sewn up or maybe this and maybe a decision will be taken by Biden to to do something or maybe the OECD process will speed along and do us a favor and take the argument out of the uh, out of the, the space for us anyway but just um that whole big tech Ireland America relationship is 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 bubbling over you know and, and, and I think it's going to seep into the political arena probably when COVID fades yeah um Michelle I don't know whether you went in on that or have you got any yeah you do go ahead yeah, um, just as well, there's another article on um, around directly elected mayors. Um, so this is obviously a conversation that we had um, in 2019 when there was a couple of uh, plebiscites ran in a couple of cities. I just happened to be based in one of them in Waterford. Um, so I have a particular interest in seeing what happens here. But So Limerick are going to be trying out this directly elected mayor um, idea. Um, and I suppose uh, some of the things that they'll have powers over are housing, healthcare, policing um, over the city and county. Um, so they're looking at the first term of this is going to be eight years long. That seems quite extraordinary, but I suppose it's to line it up with um, the local elections then that that would happen. They'll have um, a considerable, say, uh, management over the, the budget as well, which is 400 million a year. But it's, it's interesting when you go into the article, um, after it names a couple of local TDs or senators who might potentially go for the position who may have already ruled it out. The number one uh, person that they put forward after that is actually Blind Boy Book Club from the Rubber Bandits, who is um, known uh, for his uh, very easy to understand political takes and analysis of life. Um, and it, it is very interesting um, to see him being posed as a rapper and podcaster that he might actually run for the directly elected mayor position. Um, yeah, it, it, it is. And then it mentioned some other kind of uh, community people as well. But it is interesting because, you know, if you have this more centralized role on like some of the things mentioned there, like policing, and then at the same time here in Waterford, who is also, uh, which was also uh, uh, 
the plebiscite was put to, where we have a joint uh, policing committee, but we're having, we also will be part of a pilot for more community policing. So on one side of Limerick, we look like we're, we're going to be centralising the policing structure a bit more. And then here in Waterford, it looks like we're going to be commu- making that more community based. So it's just an interesting discussion how that will go. But obviously it's going to be interesting to see how this all pans out. Like, you know, a lot of people would have uh, grievances with the fact that a lot of the powers that be in councils are actually with uh, an unelected um, official. Um, so we'd be interested to see what that looks like when we politicise that role and how that will affect the local policies. Um, and will will that really give us more power back in the councils? And will it be neoliberal power that we're, we're putting back in the councils or what way that's going to look? But we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah, it'll be an interesting one, all right. Um, Glenn, do you want to in on something there? Uh, I know I was just, um, and I always said we would chat about the interview with Saoirse McHugh before we wrapped up. So I really just wanted to uh, draw attention to that. Um, and I suppose encourage everybody to give it a read. Um, it's a really, really good insight into um, into somebody who, who you know, was, has probably not gotten uh, uh, the fairest of times from, from over the last couple of years politically. Uh, and somebody who I think would it would be a shame if she if she did disappear from public life altogether. Um but sort of speaks, you know, on behalf of a lot of people who maybe feel politically homeless, who are, are sort of looking for for radical answers and don't feel like they get the airing they need. Um, and sort of her own grapplings with, I suppose, capitalism and everything is really interesting. And I, we were chatting a bit off air about, um, you know, and I won't spoil too much of it because I think people should go and read it about, you know, how pervasive capitalism is as an ideology and that, you know, she's talking about whether she has she outgrown Chomsky and she's sounding juvenile and so well, hang on a second why am I policing my own thoughts and it's that you know to be taken seriously in the public arena yeah you, you almost have to do that whereas the I suppose the the mortgage brokers and the the founders of Renewa and the, the 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 dentists the celebrity dentists don't have to do that you know they can be free marketeers and be taken as you know custodians of common sense um and she's a real attack on ideology sort of similar thoughts that I had on my own blog a few weeks ago, but she probably says it more diplomatically, you know, in the sense that these people who believe in financialized neoliberalism, like they don't exist in some ideological free world either, you know? Um, so just a really, really good read. Genuinely uh, enjoyed it now. Um, and it would, it would it would give you some hope because I think there are, you know, there are there are an awful lot of people out there who, who, who look to Saoirse for, for answers and she's obviously still looking for them herself and that's, there's nothing particularly wrong with that, you know, and, and hopefully we, we, we haven't seen the last and I know she's obviously doing the the ABCs of um, uh, is it environmentalism as well, which I'm up to episode C myself now under the left block and that's been really, really worthwhile to hear herself and John and Lorna uh, sort of break down eco-socialism as well. So um, hopefully you can keep her producing those, Dave. <laughs> well, it's not us that's getting them doing that. It's uh, John is is uh, John and Sinead actually are the two drivers of that podcast, really. So, uh, and, and Lorna obviously. Um, so they know they're doing a great job on that and and trying to break it down for for people into understanding. And I, you know, I read the article. I thought it was very good. Um, and there's a sentence there that I'm just going to read out. I know we don't want to get into too much detail because we want people to go and read it. But um, at the core of McHugh's outlook is the belief that capitalism is ca- incapable of providing any answers to climate breakdown. Uh, and she goes on to talk about what you know the problems of capitalism around this is. And then, as you say, it gets into uh, being as we all are probably framed, even with the zero COVID stuff and other bits, being framed as just an idealist, as if, um, you know, it's used in a pejorative term and to say, you know, you'll never achieve this and you'll never achieve that, which, you know, it's meant as an insult. And if someone calls me an idealist, I go, yeah, great. It's better than not being one. Um, I, I have a vision for a better, fairer Ireland and a better, fairer world and all the rest of it. But somehow people in the likes of Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael think that they're insulting you and, and being a bit like when they call you call me a populist. I'm like, and what's the problem? Uh, you know, right wing populism. Yeah, we have a problem with. But, you know, the, the populism is is generally just about representing the majority of the view of democracy. Uh, and the opposite of populism is elitism. And I'm completely against elitism. But elitism is fine. Populism is not. Um, but yeah, no, it's a really good article. And I'd urge people it's worth the, the purchase of the business post today just to, to read that one. I don't know, Michelle or Julian, if you have anything um, that you want to raise there or whether I'll finish off with a um a couple of other articles um i don't know i won't finish off with a couple of other articles i'll finish off with a couple of quotes um but before that i tweeted an an article that's in the page 16 on the markets of the irish times i tweeted it late last night when i was reading through this amazon seeks changes to union vote process 
And this one is a fascinating story. It's only small, but when you look into it, um, it, it it's really, really interesting. I, I, I don't have my phone near me to get this website that Amazon just launched yesterday, I think, or this week. But, but this story here in particular is about how Amazon is asking the U.S. Labor Relations Board to consider having workers vote in person rather than by mail on a proposal to form a union at an Alabama warehouse. So here we have a company that is completely and entirely dependent on a mailing system, on the delivery of the products that people are buying from their online sales. And they're arguing against workers being able to utilize the mail, the same system that has made Jeff Bezos the richest man on the planet. I just find the irony hilarious uh, on that one. And they launched a website, I think it's called Jews Not Jews. Do, it, do it without Jews. So do it without the Jews. So of course they're going to solve all of the problems internally, and we don't need unions. But you can save your money because you know we got your back as much as they've had their back this whole time. Um, so definitely one to believe, guys. Definitely one to believe. Yeah, and I, I, again, we we face it in the retail sector a, a, a lot of times where um, companies spend absolute fortune millions on trying to union bust and saying that unions are irrelevant. Well, if unions were irrelevant. Why the fuck are you spending millions of euros on trying to break them? So um, it's a very clear indication that unions are um, powerful and the best way that workers can get a bit, an increase in the standard of living. So I'm going to wrap up the show now. I want to um, I'm going to do it with these two quotes. Uh, <laughs> first one is from our friend Jeremy Clarkson. We live in a country where children from less well off families are entitled to free lunches when they are at home. Yippee. And it says the multimillionaire is telling low income British families to stop whinging about the terrible quality of their children's lunches. Isn't it great of a multimillionaire to tell people to stop whinging about shit meals? Um, And then the second quote, because I I want to wrap up on this one, is from Kira McGean, uh, who's an athlete, one of Ireland's greatest athletes over the last couple of decades. Um, But she said there will be a few people who walk through your life and leave lasting footprints in your heart. Jerry Kiernan was one of those people, but so was Mel Corey. So I wanted to wrap up on that one. Um, I want to thank our guests, Julia Merciel uh, from uh, UCD and an activist that we've known for a few years through the Water Charges Movement and some other political campaigns. I want to thank Michelle Byrne, another activist from Waterford, to give us that that, uh, country dynamic as well. (laughs) And I want to thank Glenn Fitzpatrick too for for his inputs. Uh, We've been The Week at Work. This is episode 40 now. Um, And look, we're part of the Left Block Project. Uh, I couldn't wrap up without saying it. If you support some of the the, the ideals that we have, some of the the, the output that we have, um, go to www.patreon.com forward slash left block without a K uh, and you can see how you can support us and get involved. So listen, thanks again to our guests and thanks to you for listening and we'll see you all again next week. <laughs>